Good morning. morning. Let's turn in God's word, please, to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. It's been good to be with you this weekend. And as these things are, it's flown by. It's gone by so quickly. But we had a good time with you last evening, and we covered the first two chapters of Ruth. And we intend in this session to get the rest of the book finished. And of course, that means we'll have to be judicious in uh, how much time we spend in each chapter. And we won't get to cover everything, but hopefully we'll get to whet your appetite to read the book for yourselves and study more from God's Word. But we thank you as an assembly of saints gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus for having us and for the hospitality and kindness you've shown us and your interest in the Word of God. Ruth chapter 3, Ruth 3 Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. Okay, keep something at Ruth 3, and let's go back to the third book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus, everybody's favorite devotional reading, the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 25 is where we want to go. Leviticus 25. And we're going to read at verse 23. Leviticus 25 and 23. Leviticus 25:23. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale And restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession, and so forth. Gives us a sense of what the Lord's on about there. Now, that shows us what the land that God gave to Israel was like. This inheritance that he speaks of, that they were getting. That it was not for them something that they could say, well, this is mine, in the sense that I own it forever and ever, And it's mine regardless of what I do. The Lord told them explicitly in the book of Deuteronomy, for example, that if they turned away from the Lord, if they followed other gods, that he would discipline them. As we saw at the beginning of the book of Ruth in chapter 1, there was a famine in the land during the time of the judges. And if that didn't work, the Lord even reserved the right to remove them from the land. And the land, as the Lord said there in Leviticus 25, is his land. Now, unfortunately, Israel as a nation to this day doesn't recognize this. 
They would tell you, some of them who are religious, and that's a minority, because the bulk of Jews by percentage that live in the land of Israel would profess to be agnostic or atheist. So they don't even believe there is a God, much less the Lord God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But among those, the Haredim, the religiously observant Jews that are actually believing in the scriptures, they'd say, well, God gave us this land, and this land is ours. And yet, really, God says, it's my land, and you're basically my tenants. You live in my land. God, if you will, is the landlord, and I don't mean any disrespect by using that term. But God made the land for the people to thrive in, for the people to enjoy the land, especially for the people to know God. Now, what is true of the land of Israel, of course, in microcosm, is true of the planet as a whole. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Psalm 24.1 tells us. This is the Lord's world. And we hear all the time people saying, well, this is our planet. You know, we've got to take care of it. We've got to save it. We've got to watch our carbon footprint. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. Because it's our world. Folks, no, it isn't. It's God's world. And when he wants, he can come back and take it. Because human beings en masse as a whole haven't lived in the way that the Lord wants them to live on the earth. And because of human sin, Romans 8 is quite clear. Just like Israel's land, the the land that the Lord brought them into was an indicator of how they were doing spiritually. If they were following the Lord, things would be going well in the land. And they would be able to praise the Lord and thank the Lord for his blessing. And they would be able to thrive, to live abundantly, if I can put it that way. But if they turned from the Lord, there were disciplinary measures. The land didn't bring forth. The land had catastrophes like famines and other things that would come. And Romans 8 similarly says about the creation as a whole that it's groaning. So when we see climate changes that are happening and catastrophes in the natural world that are happening, we shouldn't be surprised by that. The Bible's been saying that for centuries because of human sin, because we refuse as human beings to put ourselves under the rule of God. Now, thankfully, there's a remnant. (laughs) There's a, a... small group of humanity that even this day recognizes that the Lord is God and he is our Lord. And we want the Lord to come and renovate the planet. And we want the Lord to rule over the planet as it was meant to be under the first Adam. And that's going to happen when the Lord comes at the second coming to earth, not to be confused with the rapture, which is prior to that. But the second coming to earth will usher in all of those promises made to Israel in the Old Testament that have to do with Messiah reigning in glory. And things like Isaiah talking in Isaiah 11 about the little child playing on the asp's nest, a very deadly venomous snake, or about the wolf and the lamb lying down together. You wouldn't try that at the Cincinnati Zoo, would you? It wouldn't go well for the lamb if you did. Uh, Things are going to be different. It will no longer be nature red in tooth and claw. But that predatory impulse will be rolled back. And human lifespans much greater. Because Isaiah says, if somebody dies at 100, it will be as if they're dying like a little child. So cheer up, you septuagenarians, octogenarians. I don't know if we have any nanogenarians in our midst or even centenarians. 
but you'll just be getting started in the millennium if you were in that millennial generation. But we, of course, will be glorified with the Lord in helping to rule and reign at that time, as God's word tells us. So it's God's land, just like the earth as a whole is God's earth. And the millennium, of course, isn't the end. The Lord is going to bring in after that new heavens and new earth, which has absolutely no sin in it. And it's going to be absolutely wonderful. You can read about it in Revelation 21 and 22. But that's another conference. That's another series. So we go back to Ruth. Now, why did I read Leviticus 25 about this being the Lord's land? Well, the Lord wanted people, as I say, to enjoy that land. But he didn't want people to enjoy the land independently of him. That's the problem as human beings, you know, that we can take the blessing and forget the blesser. Now, we can take the good things from God and we can forget that it is God who's giving them to us. We can forget even to be thankful. Romans 1 says about humanity, again, in our history, that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. And that's an all too common human sin, ingratitude, especially toward the Lord. Uh, Think of how Daniel spoke to the king Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5 and said, The God in whose hand your breath is, you have not honored. Well, we could, and whose are all your ways, Daniel says. Acts 17 says something similar. That God isn't distant. It says he's not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Think of it. Every human being, even the people today that are using their breath, and using their thought life from the brain God has given them, and using their time, and using the food God lets them have, and the families and friendships that they have, and they are using those things as if God doesn't exist. Whether they profess to be theist or atheistic, whether they say there is a God or isn't, they're living like practical atheists. They don't care about God. They're not dependent on God. That's why the Lord taught believers to pray, Give us this day our daily bread so that we would have this sense that everything we get, even material things in this world, it comes to us from the Father. Every good and perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning, James chapter 1 says. So we, we recognize the goodness of God, the goodness of God in giving us natural life. But for a believer, how much more we can say the goodness of God in giving spiritual life. That to the believer, he's given his son. The Lord Jesus died on the cross and rose again to give us the gift of eternal life. Not of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. Titus 3 reminds us. And Ephesians 2 says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the Lord is offering still today to humanity rest. That brings us back to Ruth chapter 3, where Naomi says to Ruth, Shall not I seek for you? Now, the New King James renders it security, and that's a perfectly good translation, but more literally, the word is rest. Shall not I seek rest for you, my daughter? And it makes me think of the Lord Jesus, how in Matthew 11, he said, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, people have this idea about God, the mistaken notion that God wants to make our lives burdensome, that God wants to weigh us down and make us, you know, really suffer, that Christians 
Uh, like H.L. Mencken, the journalist of a bygone generation, he defined a Puritan as someone who has the sneaking suspicion that somebody somewhere is having a good time. And that, of course, is a malicious slander that has nothing to do with believers who were described as Puritans in previous centuries. Mencken didn't know his history, but that didn't matter. My mind is made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. That's how many people roll. You know, they build up a caricature. Christians aren't people who say, no, life is hard and life is joyless and service of the Lord is so rigorous and bad. I mean, it's true. The Lord said to his followers, in the world you shall have tribulation. But the Lord didn't stop there. He said, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In John chapter 16, he said that. And we have this life that the Lord Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So that we're able to enjoy everything from this standpoint. That whatever comes our way, whether it's good, bad, or somewhere in between, we can say this is what the Father has appointed. The Father's in control. This isn't going to thwart the tremendous purpose of God to bring me into eternal rest. To bring me into His presence. And where I can enjoy Him, and as we sang this morning, to love Him with unsinning heart. Well, when Naomi says to Ruth here, shall I not seek rest for you? She has in mind two specific passages of scripture, two parts of the law that God had given Israel. One is that passage we read in Leviticus 25. The other, for sake of memory, it's very nice. It's in Deuteronomy 25. We won't read it for sake of time, but that's that portion I alluded to last night about the Levirate marriage. In other words, the duty of the brother-in-law. Where if a brother dies without leaving behind an heir to carry on his name, the next eligible brother is to marry the widow and raise up an heir in the name of his brother so that that name doesn't perish out of Israel. Now think of it. If our names being preserved, if our lives, if us being something, not only for time but for eternity, was contingent on our performance, how would we ever be assured that we should be eternally remembered, that our life would count for something, that we wouldn't spoil and ruin it. After all, there's been a lot of notable and noble people who've discovered great things, but after their lifetime, they're forgotten about. Ecclesiastes talks about an older man that did that, that he figured out a way to deliver a city that was under threat of enemies. And yet after they were delivered from their enemies, they forgot that man. And they didn't bring him any honor. Well, that's not how God is, you know. God is the one who wants to remember his people. Who wants to commemorate them for eternity. The one who, the picture in Israel, was that the high priest had a breastplate. And he had the names of the different tribes on the breastplate, right? And he also had stones on his shoulders, with the names of the tribes. So whenever he went in before the Lord, he was bringing the people before the Lord. One of our hymn writers catches the thought, uh, uh, O God, we come with singing, because our great high priest, our names to thee is bringing, nor e'er forgets the least. For us he wears the mitre, where holiness shines bright. For us his robes are whiter than heaven's unsullied light. Yes, the Lord ever lives to make intercession for us. And he doesn't forget about us. 
He doesn't say, oh, well, there they are in Ohio. You know, isn't that a flyover type of place? He doesn't say, there they are in Birdsboro, Pennsylvania. Who's ever heard of Birdsboro, Pennsylvania? Who would possibly live there? Well, I do, but anyway. Um, Now, the Lord says that he has us in his thoughts. His thoughts are to usward. In fact, the psalmist said, great are your thoughts. Uh, They are more than can be numbered. Your thoughts to usward. So when she's talking about rest, it's this idea of the provision God has made in Leviticus 25 to recover the inheritance, to recover the property and the land that's been lost. And Deuteronomy 25, to recover the name, to make sure that that man's life isn't effaced, that that name isn't written out of the lineage of Israel. And so she bids Ruth take certain steps. Now it's important to understand that context because if you read Ruth 3 very superficially, it seems strange at best and in the minds of some unbelievers who've read this passage, it can even seem obscene. And people have made all kinds of insinuations of immorality to what's going on here. I want to tell you that there's not any scintilla of evidence that there was anything improper going on here. Now, let's get into the details. She knew, Naomi knew, that Boaz was there in the threshing floor winnowing his barley. And apparently, from reading up about ancient Israelite agricultural practices, uh, this was a big job, separating the barley from the chaff, as it were, from the particles that weren't useful. And when you had this harvest of your crop and you're now getting the good stuff, you'd stay with it to guard it. So this is why Boaz is there laboring, laboring long, and in fact lying down to sleep in that same place. That's the backstory here. And what's happening is not that Naomi and Ruth are going to manipulate Boaz into doing something he doesn't want to do, but they are going to approach him in a private way which in its way shows respect to Boaz. Because Boaz is the superior in this case. He is the mighty man of valor, as chapter 2 calls him. He's the man of great wealth. He's the man who's the kinsman redeemer. He has the means and ability to redeem them, to play the part of the brother-in-law and raise up seed to his dead relative, but also to recover the property. Now the question is, He has the means. Does he have the willingness? So he has to be approached. And they're not going to approach him in a public fashion and just in front of everybody. This is what uh, sociologists, I guess, or anthropologists might call a shame and blame culture. They're not going to risk this man being dishonored. Rather, they're going to approach him secretly so that if he wants to turn them down, he can do it. And, And really... They behind all of this, there's an understanding that this is the providence of God. God's put this proviso in the word. Why don't we take advantage of it? God has said, if you get into this position where you fall into poverty and have to sell your property or where your husband dies and he hasn't left behind seed to carry on his name, this is what you do. So what they're doing is they're taking the promises of God. They're taking the teaching of the scripture and they're saying, yes, we're going to obey what that says. 
So this isn't a brainwave that Naomi had one day over her her breakfast, you know, or uh, Cocoa Pebbles or whatever it was. Uh, She didn't suddenly come up with this bright idea on her own. She's thinking to what the scriptures say, just like in chapter two, when they when Ruth goes out to the fields to glean. She's thinking of what Leviticus 19 and Leviticus 23 says, that this is what the poor can do. Now, of course, that brings up the question for us. The Lord says to us that there is redemption. There is a redeemer, in fact, who has the means of buying up what we lost and of restoring it. In fact, restoring more than humankind lost, as I said last night. There is a redeemer who's able to save us out of sin and to bring us into new life and to bless us with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. There is one who is able to give us a new name, Revelation chapter 2 says, which only the recipient and the Lord himself know what that name is. It's a special name between them, between the two of them. And the Lord gives us all this in the scripture. It, of course, begs the question, Have I believed the scripture? Have I come to God and said, yes, that's what I want. Lord, you say, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Have you come to the Lord for rest? Have you come and said, Lord, I am burdened by sin. Lord, I, I am indebted. I owe a debt I can't pay. But I know you paid a debt you did not owe. Did you come to the Lord yet and say that? Well, many of you would say, yes, I... I came to the Lord in 1976, or I came to the Lord as I did in 1980, or I came to the Lord in the 90s, or the early 2000s, or five years ago, or whatever it was. Many of you could say, yes, I've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm resting in him. It's because the Lord Jesus died, because the Lord Jesus arose, because the Lord Jesus rose on high, leading captivity captive, and has given gifts unto men that I am saved, not only for this world, but for the world to come, for time and eternity. I have eternal life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you can say that. Because it's on the books. The promise is there. The Redeemer has paid the right price to redeem, to buy us out of our bondage and to restore that which our sin had destroyed and bereft us of, even life with God, and being brought into a heavenly inheritance, which First Peter 1 says is reserved for us, guarded For us in heaven, it is unfading, incorruptible, and thieves can't break through and take it. Now she approaches Boaz and does this. And of course, she comes and the big controversial thing that the unbelieving scholars try to bring in in verse seven is she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now, to read this passage and think that there's anything immoral going on. You've really got to have a perverted imagination. But we're living in a hyper-sexualized culture, so I'm not surprised. Because everything today, even shampoo commercials, is hyper-sexualized, you know? That everything is about uh, just carnal knowledge of people and people fornicating and people having relations. This is nothing of that. This whole matter of uncovering the feet speaks to uh, what... We already read when Boaz met Ruth in chapter 2 that he speaks about her coming to trust under the wings of the Lord. And here, when Boaz suddenly awakens and realizes somebody's at his feet, she says in verse number 9 there, 
I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing. Same word that's used in Ruth, too. Where he said, you've come to trust under the Lord's wings. You've come to seek refuge under the Lord's wings. For you are a close relative. Now, this is very technical. She's saying, throw your wing of protection over me. This is how the Lord's appointed for me to be protected. He's put it in the word that a kinsman redeemer can come and can shelter a person in my circumstance, a person that is destitute, a person that has lost all the family property, a person whose husband is no longer alive to carry on the family name. And I'm coming to you to bring back what's lost and to offer protection. Now look at his response, verse 10. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness. Again, the word kindness here is covenant love. It's the word related to loving kindness. You're operating under the terms of the covenant that God has given in the word of God. The the things that God has said to do, in other words. You've shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning. I mean, it was great kindness, and Naomi herself recognized it in chapter 1, for Ruth to leave her family and her homeland and to go with Naomi to this new land of Israel and say, your God is going to be my God and your people, my people, and where you die, I will die, and nothing but death is going to part you and me. That was wonderful, but this is even better, says Boaz. And he says, he explains why, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. In other words, here is a young woman who could have gone after one of the younger men in Israel, and that would have been more pleasing to the flesh. I mean, you know, if you have the choice of marrying an older, broken-down, middle-aged guy or marrying, you know, somebody who's this young, strapping buck, you know, in the prime of life with the six-pack abs and all that kind of stuff, you know, and the well-defined pectoralis muscles and the magnificent uh, deltoids and whatnot, and maybe you're a trapezius sort of person, I don't know. But anyway, whatever sort of male anatomy you're attracted to, you could go after the young man if you're just in it for yourself. But Boaz says, no, you're thinking about more than yourself here, Ruth. You're thinking about your obligations to the family. In other words, Ruth is not just acting saying, I'm in a whole lot of trouble. Would you please bail me out of my situation? She's also thinking of her mother-in-law. She's also thinking of her dead husband and her dead brother-in-law and her dead father-in-law. And she's saying there's all that to consider, you know. And she's thinking of the future of God's people Israel. She said he would be her God and his people her people. And she's acting. She's actually sublimating what might be her own desires naturally or what one would, the world would tell her, put yourself first. You deserve it. You know, go for what's good for you. And she's saying, no, I'm going to follow what the word says on behalf of the family. So he says, verse 11, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Again, the virtuous woman is spoken about in Proverbs 31. And I was reading a brother last night who's a Hebrew scholar. And he pointed out 
that in the Hebrew Bible, the order of the books is somewhat different than our order, that in their Bible, Ruth would actually come after Proverbs. So you've just finished Proverbs, where you've read about the virtuous woman, and you get this book all about Ruth, who is a virtuous woman. Naomi was as well, of course. But how improbable. Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth a Gentile. Ruth who's from the people that didn't have the word of God. That didn't have the covenants. That didn't have the promises. She's a virtuous woman. And that testimony is now known through the community, he said. Verse 12. Now it is true that I am a close relative, a kinsman redeemer. However, there's a relative closer than I. And Leviticus discusses this. That there's a pecking order. That if there's not an eligible brother, you go to the next nearest relation. Well, Boaz isn't the next nearest relation. There's somebody nearer. So he's got to follow the order of the scripture. He's not going to set aside the Bible and say, oh, it doesn't matter. This is a man who's committed to the Lord's ways. He says, verse 13, stay this night and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. Now, this guy's thoughts are God centered, theocentric, we would say that he swears to her in the name of the Lord. One way or another, you're going to be redeemed tomorrow. If it's the near kinsman, great. Let him do what the Bible says. But if it's left to me, I'm not passing my responsibility. I'll do it. And he says, lie down till morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Now why? Not because there's been anything illicit going on, but because people could misconstrue the situation. Why are you going to the threshing floor? Why are you there with Boaz at night? Uh, Why doesn't he send her out immediately after promising to do this? Well, read the book of Judges. Women got attacked, unfortunately, in the book of Judges. It was a time, as I said yesterday, of violence against women. So he's not going to send her out at night where she could literally be attacked on the way home. Nor is he going to expose her to potential scandal by People talking, oh, she was in the threshing floor with him. Misconstruing that what was happening here was not only innocent, it was righteous. Because it was according to the dictates that the Lord had laid out in his word. And yet I like this, before he sends her away, verse 15, also he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Now I think... In chapter 2, she gets one ephah. So here she gets six. And I was reading someone else who estimated that for two people, Naomi and Ruth, that one ephah would probably take care of their needs for about two weeks. So you can imagine giving her six ephahs for people who start our story in famine condition. This is amazing largesse, amazing generosity as he provides for her. Then she went into the city. And she came to her mother-in-law and she said, Is it you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me. For he said, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. You know, imagine the joy of Gentiles who get to go out and tell Jews. It can happen even right now in this church age in which we live. 
But I think it'll happen too in the future tribulation, although many of the witnesses that will be uh, in that time will also be of Jewish lineage. We'll have the 144,000 who have nothing to do with Jehovah's Witness, let me tell you that. Uh, They're from the tribes of Israel, according to the book of Revelation. And uh, what a wonderful thing, though, for a Gentile to go to a Jew and tell them about Boaz, tell them about the man who makes provision, the man who takes the famished soul and who feeds it. He takes the hungry and he gives them bread, who satisfies. What a privilege it is to tell anybody, really, about the Lord Jesus who has saved us, who has done everything for us. And she gets to come back and show all that the Lord has given him. Now, this is one of my favorite verses in the book, verse 18. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. You don't have to do anything more. You've put your case in Boaz's hands. Trust Boaz to keep his word. Boaz is a faithful man. Boaz is a man of his word. Boaz isn't going to lie and deceive and twist things for his advantage. He's going to take up our cause and do what is right. How much more the Lord? You know, we do need to follow what the scriptures say. We do need to come to the Lord. But we come to the Lord and we throw ourselves on his mercy. And we don't need to do anything else. We don't need to say, now, Lord, I know if I do my part, you'll do your part and I'll be saved. No, we come and just say, Lord, if you don't do your part, I have nothing. You are the one who saves. You've already done it by dying on the cross. You said it is finished. And all I can say is, amen, that's true. I can't add anything to that. You come and you say, Lord, take my case. There's, there's a, many times in Scripture that we're told, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Or here, sit still. Let Boaz work for you. And the Lord is working for us, you know, if you're a believer. Philippians 1 says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it under the day of Christ Jesus. He's not going to get midway through the work and say, well, I know I promised to save you in 1980, Keith, but you've turned out to be such a rascal. You're so recalcitrant, you know, you're just obdurate and stubborn and you don't listen to me. Well, I'm sorry, I'm going to scrap you. Thanks be to God, as much as I deserve that, God will never do that. He says, your sins and iniquities, I'll remember no more. I'm not going to bring them up against you. In fact, I'm your God and you're my people. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember that the Lord, when he gave the cup, said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And the new covenant said, yes to Israel, and it will be for them in a future day, according to Jeremiah 31. But Hebrews applies it to us right now. I am your God and you're my people. You'll all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. And we know him. That's what eternal life is. This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou was sent, John 17, 3. Now we hasten on to chapter 4. Boaz went to the gate, which in the Bible is the place of city government. That's where Lot is sitting in Genesis 19. That's what the Lord says in Matthew 16. The gates of hell aren't going to prevail against the church. The authority, the decisions, the wisdom source of Satan isn't going to be able to stand against the Lord building his church. And here Boaz goes up to the gate, the place of business and transaction, 
And here comes the near kinsman. So he says, come aside, friend, sit down here. Or I like the older translation. Oh, there's such a one. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So this is a legal proceeding. Okay, we've got witnesses to verify the transaction that's going to happen. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belongs to our brother Elimelech. Again, we bring up Elimelech's name because we're going to recover what Elimelech lost. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there's no one but you to redeem it, and I'm next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now, that all sounds very good, right? You're the nearest kinsman. You're the one who can be the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. So, will you do it? Oh, sure. I can always use some more territory. Aha, but here, here comes the fine print. Always read the fine print in the contract, right? Verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, dun, 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 the Moabitess. Ooh. <laughs> well, that's a different matter. <laughs> I mean, if we're just talking real estate, you know what uh, Lucy said in, in Peanuts. What do I want for Christmas? Real estate. Uh, real estate's always good. <laughs> but a wife? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, marriage is a wonderful institution. I'm just not ready for an institution yet. And uh, uh, I mean, a Gentile and a Moabitess, no less. I mean, somebody from our enemies. Will you buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance? And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, some brothers, in thinking of the typology of this passage, liken it to Romans 8 and to what it says about the law versus Christ. It says in Romans 8, 3, what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. You know, there's no problem with the law. First Timothy 1 tells us the law is holy and just and good. God's standards are fair and right. Problem is with us, as sinners, we can't keep it. Nobody's ever kept the law perfectly, save the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. He's the only one that fully kept the law. The law can only condemn us. But what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did in sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemn sin in the flesh, verse 4 says. So, we don't come to the law and say, well, that can save me. The law can never bring you into your inheritance. It's got to be faith in Christ. Right. And here the near kinsman says, no, I can't do it. And this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and all Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off. That's a technical term 
that occurs frequently in Leviticus, for example, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from the young woman. Now the book ends with a genealogy, of course. And the New Testament begins with a genealogy. And there's overlap between the names in this genealogy and the names in that. Because the extraordinary thing is that even as they pronounce this blessing and say, may the Lord use her like that he used Leah and Rachel. You go back and read Genesis and it's like womb wars, you know? I mean, you talk about family dysfunction. Uh, they were uh, fighting and every time one of them had a baby or her servant had a baby in her name, you know, she'd be putting it over on her, on her sister. I mean, it was really ugly. And some of the ways that they behaved and some of the ways their sons behaved, really ugly stuff because sinners will sin, you know. And look at the mess that is human history. And yet God is able to overcome and brick by brick, as it were, to build the edifice that he's making to accomplish his purposes. And he's going to do for Israel everything he's promised to them. And he will do for the church as well. Everything he has promised for it. Now, he brings up of all people Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And you remember that's one of the ugliest stories in Genesis, chapter 38. We won't go into the sordid details. But that's where Levirate marriage went awry. Where because Judah didn't practice that particular part, even though he was before the law, it was a custom even then in Genesis that they were to do this. And because he didn't do the right thing, she did the wrong thing. And God says, well, two wrongs don't make a right. But nonetheless... I'm taking the offspring and I'm using him anyway. And I'm going to build Israel out of that. And not just build Israel. I'm going to have a plan to bring all the way down to Messiah. Because the genealogy in Matthew 1 that contains these names, of course, is the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. The legal genealogy giving his rights to the throne. But before we get to that, verse 14, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, without a kinsman redeemer. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Well, there's a great titles to meditate on. And if there's anybody that's a restorer of life and a nourisher, it's the Lord Jesus. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who's better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. And the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, This is a son born to Naomi. Wait a minute, I thought it was born to Ruth. Well, technically, uh, yes, you, you got me there. Biologically, he was born to Ruth. But he's bringing back everything that Naomi lost. And then bringing more. Because this son is going to have a son named Jesse. And Jesse's going to have a son named David who becomes the great king in Israel, the man after God's own heart. And the one God promises in 2 Samuel 7 that he will never lack a descendant to rule on the throne of David. Ultimately, that's going to be literally fulfilled when our Lord Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem. And so this blessing is not only for their time, 
to give Naomi joy and to take this woman who at the beginning of our story is bitter. Life has gone against her. She's been beat up and scarred. Much of it because of sin in her family, her husband's sin, and to some degree maybe hers. And she's been beat up by that. But the Lord says, I'm able to come and to restore what I took not away, to use the language of Psalm 69. The Lord is the one who does the trespass offering. He not only pays for the sin, he pays for the damage that the sin caused. And he's going to bring back more than Adam lost. The future new heavens and new earth are far beyond what Eden was. And the Lord is going to bring his people into that. So it's a marvelous segue between Judges into 1 Samuel, which, by the way, begins with another great lady of faith, Hannah. But that's another story. And in both cases, there are big problems with having children and having the family go on. But God sovereignly overcomes those things and works out his purposes. And even as we look at our world and you look at your life with all of its problems, if you're the Lord's, you can say, My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. You can say the work which he's begun in me, he's going to be faithful to complete. He's not going to stop till it's done. Father, we're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ today and give thee praise for thy word. We pray that we take great confidence in a God who works through the difficulties of life, even the ugly dysfunction of our sin. And he's able to come and overcome it. He's able to extricate us from our plight. And bring us into new life. And transform us by the working of his Holy Spirit. All this because the Son died for our sins. And rose again for our justification. All this because thou hast sent him, Father. And we thank thee for this in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen.